one of my Mississippi friends reached out to me after listening to the episode and they said, you know, you can stand to let the accent go a little bit more. So I'm giving it a shot for this episode. Howdy y'all and welcome back to the Treehouse Anime Club where I talk about anime production and the fine folks who make it all possible. My name is David and I am the creator and host of this program. On our episode today, we will cover the production story of Inuo, a film by visionary director Masaki Yuasa and produced by studio Science Saru. Asmic Ace, and Aniplex. Don't you know Inuo's story? Apparently he's hideous. You're wearing a mask? What happens when you take it off? <laughs> You'll see. You're in for a shock. I can't see. My name is Tomona. I've actually picked a name for myself. Huh? You picked your own name? And someday the world will know it. Because I'll be the star of the Hieza. The film is actually based on a novel, Heike Story, the Inuo chapters by novelist Hideo Furukawa. There's also a small bonus. We get a history lesson included in today's episode, so I hope you look forward to that. The The beginning of the film does a decent job of explaining what's going on, but even just a little bit extra context went a long way. But before we get to any of that, I got to do the thing where I talk about the show and promote it. So Treehouse Anime Club is on the air, courtesy of Spotify for Podcasters. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify. You can also jump in there and copy the RSS link for your platform of choice. We post new episodes about twice a month. We have an Instagram, the Treehouse Anime Pod. That's all one word. You can stay up to date with the show, plus a couple of extra goodies. And we have a Discord. You can also follow that link in the Treehouse Anime Club Instagram. I believe I have it posted on my profile for the Spotify deal. If I don't, then I can rectify that or you can reach out to me on Instagram or also on Spotify. I will be glad to send you that link. Any and all means of engagement really helps the show and I really appreciate all the support the show has gotten so far. We are doing very well. We're ha- we've had a really great first month. I'm honestly surprised. I, Especially just given the kind of grassroots nature of this podcast, I don't have a, any kind of baked in audience aside from friends and family and you guys have really shown up. I am eternally grateful for everything and I'm glad that a couple of y'all are sticking around to give this show a chance. The Discord is also off to a great start. I have a couple of channels. We have channels for uh, episode comments. I have a little new game show called 15 Seconds of Fame you can throw in there and then just generally hanging out. We have a nice little community growing and hopefully if you feel led you can jump in there as well and help this little weed grow a little bit further. So getting into more standard stuff, what have I been watching? Well, the spring season is almost over, and by the time our next episode drops, we should be in the summer season, and I figured I would list off a couple of shows that I'm excited for. Uh, First off, there's the second season of Horimiya. This was a really surprise hit for me, another slice-of-life show from spring 2021. And this was actually airing up against Attack on Titan Season 4. I think it was Part 1. It could have been Part 2. Anyways, Horimiya just became one of the standouts of that year. I I honestly found it funny that I was more excited for this high school rom-com drama deal than about one of the most anticipated action series every time the weeks rolled around. So I was more excited for Horimiya than I was for freaking Attack on Titan. You know, Horimiya is that good. And I know Season (laughs) 2 is just going to be even better. Another one that I'm kind of excited for, I just more just because of uh, the press it's been getting, and I've checked out a little bit of the manga. This is another show called Helk, 
And again, I didn't know anything about this show, but High Dive announced their acquisition and this generated a lot of buzz. I saw a lot of excitement online. So I figured I would check out a few chapters of the manga and it seems to be more like a comedy sort of fantasy RPG. There's a murder mystery thrown in. The character designs are hilarious. The main character is just completely overly jacked just to ridiculous degrees. And I think it's going to be just a fun series that will still have. It, it's it's one of those comedy series that has enough room to get serious and have some deeper themes rather than just, oh, the main character's very much a muscle man and he just punches his way through everything. I think this is going to be a standout deal. High Dive's been really good about getting acquisitions like Helk that just completely surprise everybody. Ya boy Kong Ming, Akiba Made War. High Dive seems to know where all the sleeper hits are. Another one, I'd forgotten this was actually coming out in the summer. This is a show called Temple or Tenpuru. Uh, this one's a straight up comedy. The main character, he becomes a Buddhist monk to basically live a pure life. His dad's a bit of a womanizer and the main character's like, I do not want to end up like my dad. But the temple he ends up at is run completely by ladies. And, you know, the general hilarity ensues if he's trying to keep his cool and they just mess with him all the time. Now, what makes me excited for this one, because the, the premise seems a bit shallow, but the manga for Tenpuru is actually written and drawn by the artist who also works on Grand Blue, which is like the funniest college gag manga I've read. It's also about a diving club and just way too much alcohol. But the art in Grand Blue is just incredible. And Tenpuru is this guy's own manga. He's the writer and the artist. The author's name is Kimitake Yoshioka, for those curious. I honestly can't wait for this one. It's going to be really good. But the big one for me is the second season of Hanmabaki, Son of Ogre. The king has returned. I love Baki so much. You can never predict what happens on this show. I'll just give you a rundown. Because last season, kidnapped the president of the United States in order to get thrown into the Arizona State Penitentiary so he could fight one of the strongest characters in the show. And it's a guy named Biscuit Oliver. And Baki's next opponent is going to be a caveman who is preserved in an assault mine. And he's fighting a Tyrannosaurus Rex. Yes, dinosaurs existed at the time of caveman. And this man's name is Pickle. This is the greatest show ever. I freaking love Baki. It is just absolutely ridiculous. But before I can experience the greatness that is Baki the Grappler, I got to finish this season. And there's not a lot different from the last episode, except I picked up a little show called Vinland Saga, and it just completely took over my life. I'd been meaning to catch up on it. I hadn't even seen season one in a long time, and This was just finally an excuse to get my butt in gear. I'm caught up with season two. I'm caught up with the finale. And this is easily one of the best shows I've ever watched in the past 10 years. I'm not exaggerating. Vinland Saga just completely took over my life. It is that good. And of course, my biggest surprise of the season continues to deliver. That's Oshinoko. I'll definitely have some thoughts on the finale once that rolls around. And it's been one heck of a ride. I can't wait for season two. It's going to be torture. And speaking of another season two, there's Ancient Magus Bride. It has been absolutely excellent. I knew this season was going to be dark, but it was still a little darker than I was prepared for. But at the same time, I really like the main character, Chisei. She is such a more active character versus season one. I really like the agency and just all the stuff that she's able to do. 
in this season, and it just keeps getting more and more tangled, the stuff that she has to deal with. And finally, I have been watching a series. In fact, the series that I'm going to cover for the next episode. And for episode five, we're covering Trigon. And I'm only saying this now because by the time episode five airs, I'm actually going to be on vacation. So episode five, the Trigon episode is going to air on July 5th. So I'm going to have that done, dusted, and uploaded, you know, queued for release well before I leave for vacation. I just wanted to announce it right now while it's still fresh in my mind and while I have you here as a captive audience. And I'm also happy to announce that including Trigon, episodes 5, 10, and 15 are going to be covering the Toonami Trinity of Space Westerns, the Cartoon Network Space Westerns. And for those of you who may not be familiar, these are Trigon, Outlaw Star, and Cowboy Bebop. This is one of, I am a huge fan of science fiction, and these three shows are the reason that I am such a fan of science fiction anime, and the Space Western in particular, like these are gateway anime, these are landmark titles all in their own right. And so I wanted to swing for the fences this year. I can't wait to get to it. So one last little segment before we move into our main topic. It's our game show, The 15 Seconds of Fame. So the deal is I play around 15 seconds of a musical clip from an anime, and it is up to you to figure out what anime that clip is from. Bonus points if you can list the song and the anime. Uh, The only prize is a sense of pride and accomplishment and Googling skills. And I thought about this uh, after the Soul Eater episode went live. I thought maybe I should have included a hint or something with that last audio clip. So for that episode and this being our first go around, I didn't want to play anything crazy obscure. I am trying to hit that sweet spot of something that was never quite mainstream, but maybe had a unique earworm or two that generated a little bit of buzz on its premiere. So here is the clip from the last episode, and then I will give the hint after the clip. Alright, this is your last chance and this is your hint. This is a long-running shonen action sports manga that also received a 26-episode anime adaptation by Toei in the mid-2000s. Last chance to guess and time's up. The answer is Air Gear. The clip is from the anime's opening credits. The song is Chain by the band Back On. Captain Ann got this one immediately in the Discord after I posted the clip, so congratulations, Captain. You are smart. Air Gear was created by Ito Ogure. His pen name is Ogreit. If you put his family name before his first name, you get Ogre Ito. So the Japanese pronunciation kind of sounds like Ogreit. I'm going to try it again. Ogre Ito, so you can kind of hear it. Ito is also the author of the popular battle manga Tengyo Tenje. I think that I probably butchered that title, but Air Gear ran from November 2002 to May 2012 in Kadansha's weekly shonen magazine. And, you know, you can probably knock it out in a weekend of light reading. It's only 350 chapters or so. The Toei anime ran in 2006. Oh, 25 episodes, not 26. And for my money, Air Gear has an incredible soundtrack for jamming out, working out. It really just gets you pumped. And I personally prefer the manga versus the anime, but the anime undoubtedly has the better music. And so without 
further ado, here is your 15 seconds of fame for this episode. Get your detecting hats ready. Good luck. All right. I wonder if you have any idea where that is from. Here is your hint. This is a series by Production IG based on a manga about an unpaid student worker who's always way in over his head and can literally smell danger. Good luck. Have fun. You can submit a guess in the Q&A portion of this episode on Spotify. Our Discord is open and has a channel for guessing. You can also comment in the Instagram post, which will include this audio clip and our cute little logo. And you can also email us at treehouseanimepod at gmail.com. The subject line can be 15 seconds of fame, episode four, or something like that. And if you know where this is from and don't feel like sending in a comment, fine then. Keep your secrets. Thank you for playing. So next up is our main body of the presentation, and this will be the story and production of Inuo. I hope you enjoy. First things first, to kick off our main topic, I wanted to provide the, a little bit of the historical context for the film. This is your history lesson that I promised. And to set things off, the film Inuo is set in the 14th century Japan. This is a time known as the Muromachi period. However, the setup for the, this story actually occurs about 300 years prior, and this is during a conflict known as the Genpei War. This is essentially a major civil war where you had these rival clans, the Heike and the Genji. They were both claiming to be the rightful rulers of Japan. And this conflict was eventually decided at the Battle of Danu-ura. And this is a major plot point for the film, of the at least in setting it up. This battle uh, took place all on the sea, specifically the Shimano-Seki Strait, got it, off the southern tip of the island of Honshu, if you are so interested in looking up the geography and history of this conflict. And during this battle, the Heike lost, and the Genji subsequently wiped them out. And over the next 300 years, the rise and fall of the Heike clan is passed down and codified into what is known as this epic tragedy. So at the crux of this conflict were three sacred relics. The purpose of these relics was to legitimize the emperor as being ordained by heaven. And these relics were passed down through the royal family over the years before, you know, being lost for various reasons to history, conflict, whatever. So the three relics were a mirror representing wisdom, a jewel, benevolence, and a sword representing valor. And this sword is called the Kusanagi no Surugi, the grass cutter sword. And these three are essentially legendary artifacts that were supposedly once wielded by the gods to perform great deeds. So obviously the Grasscutter Sword has a, an entire backstory behind its name and does a lot more than just cut grass. Now, of course, the actual historical status of these relics are dubious at best. 
you got your usual deal. You know, commoners may not view or approach, touch the relics. Otherwise, they will die. Only the chosen emperor can interact with these relics because they are, of course, ordained by heaven. These relics were carried around in three boxes. So basically, the audience would only see the boxes. And the entire Genpei War, in a, in a way, or at least how Inuo phrases it, the Genpei War was basically to control these three relics so that once you won, you would have the relics and you'd say, okay, people, we control the three relics. We are obviously ordained by heaven. So we're totally cool. Don't uprise against us. That's kind of how I see it. And at the at the Battle of Dano Ura, the Genji clan was after the sword. The Heike clan was in possession of this sword. However, during the battle, when it was apparent that the Heike was going to lose, the clan tied their child emperor and his grandmother to the box containing the grass cutter sword and threw him into the ocean. And this artifact lay underwater for 300 years. And this is a aspect of the conflict that just contributed greatly to the Heike's legend. The dragon emperor of the Heike establishes his immortal palace at the bottom of the sea, you know, and other such flowery phrases. So to get into the plot summary proper for Inuo, we have two main characters. We have the title character, Inuo, and Tomona. And both of these men have some very interesting backgrounds. Inuo in particular, he is an individual who is horrendously deformed at birth. And the adults cover him in rags, clothing. They leave him outside with the dogs. He's not even treated like a human. They also make him wear a gourd mask to cover his face. And his face is never really shown to us, the audience. But we get enough context clues and uh, reactions of the people around who he does show his face to. That basically tells us what we need to know. Like he, his left hand is fused to his forehead. His right arm is easily three to four times longer than a normal human arm. He also doesn't have any legs. He just has these little stumps. He's obviously hunchbacked. He has scales on his back. I think he says he has like a hairy chest, like he's just covered in fur. It's just his body proportions and general way of life. It's, it's frankly impossible. And at the beginning of the film, in the opening credits in this explanation, we see Inuo's father wearing a very disturbing mask. So obviously we know that Inuo's father did something rather nefarious in order to gain success and wealth. So we have a bit of a supernatural aspect going on with Inuo. And this name is actually one that the child gave gave himself. Inuo means king of the dogs. And this child is, his father is a famous Sangaku performer. And Sangaku is just an early form of no theater, uh, N-O-H, from 8th century to 14th century in Japan. No theater was formally developed into what we know it today during the Monomachi period. This is a theater where they utilize masks to portray a character's role and mood. Think of it like the also the Greek masks in the comedies and tragedies. No theater also puts a lot of emphasis on body language and tone of voice. If you think about it like in a museum, these are the masks that you see in all the museum and tourist brochures. Some of them have horns and very exaggerated facial expressions. It's those kinds of masks. You'll see them next to samurai armor. And Inua himself is actually based on a real person who lived during this time period. And he's known to have been a Sangaku performer, and a really good one. But there's, other than that, there's practically no historical record aside from the legends. And this is an aspect that both uh, Furukawa's novel and Yuasa's film uh, take full advantage of. 
And despite his many deformities, Inuo begins to perform the Sengaku dances by watching his father, and he has two brothers. And after doing this for years and years, one day, and stick, stick with me here, one day, the all of this dancing magically restores the boy's legs. So already we have something weird happening in the in the plot right now. This is not exactly strictly a historical piece. So jumping over to our second main character, his name is Tomana. He grew up in a fishing village located along the shores of where the Battle of Dan no Ura took place 300 years ago. And he and his father and generally their village, it's a fishing and diving village. And part of what they fish up includes relics from that ancient battle. And Tomana just happens to find the resting place of the Grasscutter Sword. And just in time too, as it turns out, there are agents from the Shogun Ashikaga Yoshimitsu who've been sent to the village to recover the sword. And the reason for this is Ashikaga wants to bring the northern and southern courts of Japan together into one deal. And in order to do that, he is, of course, after the ancient imperial relics. And he believes even having one of these relics will help legitimize his rule. And the Grasscutter Sword is his best bet because obviously everybody knows that the child emperor of the Heike was thrown into the ocean, so the Grasscutter Sword has to be laying at this general spot near this battle. So Tomana's father is paid to recover this sword. And so they row out to the site, they get the sword, Tomo's father draws the sword, and like I said, the historical status of these relics and, you know, commoners cannot touch this these artifacts or else they will die. Well, in the story of Inuo, there's a little bit of truth to these legends because as soon as he draws the sword, Tomono's father is split in two by a flash of light. And this flash of light also blinds Tomono. The Imperial agents only survived because they feared the legends of the sword. So when Tomono's father drew the sword, they immediately looked away. And again, like some, some really weird supernatural stuff going on with both Inuo and Tomana. And after being blinded by the sword, Tomana goes on a journey. And on this journey, he is being haunted by the spirit of his dead father, who wants vengeance for being killed by the Grasscutter Sword. And in his travels, he meets a group of blind Biwa players. This is basically loot players, and decides to join their ranks. And these players are known as the Biwa Hoshi, and they are an organization known as, also known as Loot Priests. The Biwa Hoshi are a group of priests who earned their living by reciting tales and playing a stringed loot instrument called a Biwa. They were, pretty much all of them were blind, and they also shaved their heads in the style of Buddhist monks. And the Biwa Hoshi were a way for essentially blind people in Japan to earn a living. Well, now, you, well now even though you're blind, you're going to be a traveling bard. So at least they had some way of earning money because you can imagine it's hard enough to earn a living and survive in 14th century Japan and now you're blind on top of it. So this was at least some kind of career to earn some kind of a living. And the Biwa Hoshi in particular are famous for performing Hekyoku. This is songs about the Heike clan. Because of the beliefs at the time and the reason for this entire legend of the Heike, because of the beliefs at the time, there were concerns about the vengeful spirits of the fallen Heike clan 
basically disturbing the balance of the world. So these songs, these heikyoku, were meant to calm the spirits down. So for the purposes of this film, since the fall of the Heike clan, stories about the rise and fall of this legendary clan have become this epic legend of Japanese history. And the songs and various stories were collected by the Biwa Hoshi and they were codified with the approval of the Shogun. That is very important. The, the Shogun is their patron. So for the purposes of this film, you can think of the Biwa Hoshi as these are traveling bards who sing songs about the Heike clan, but from an approved playlist. And this is the group that Tomona joins. And as part of joining this troupe, Tomona has to change his name to Tomoichi. The, it's, it's essentially he's taking part of his name from the leader of this particular troupe. And this is a, something that all the members do. This identifies them as members of this particular troupe. But the name change frustrates the spirit of his dead father, who warns Tomona that changing his name will make it harder for his father's spirit to find him. And Tomona changes his names a couple of times during the film. So moving forward, I'm just going to refer to him as Tomo. That's just to keep things either easy. He changes from Tomoichi to Tomoari. And I think he, yeah, at the end of the film, he changes it back to Tomona. Before I get to the studio and staff, I want to take a quick pause and see if you're still with me. We've got magic swords. We've got ghosts. We've got curses. And also the literal magic of dance. Like, what is this movie? Put simply, this movie is a story about the friendship of Inuo and Tomona. They dance and sing to get to the truth of each other's curse and also just break said curse. Because it turns out Inuo looks the way he does because he is haunted by the spirits of Heike Samurai. And it is these spirits who come to him and tell him their stories. And through this, Tomo and Inuo become business partners and they go around the country singing songs about the stories of the Heike clan, but told to them by the spirits. And as their songs gain more notoriety, the two men become very famous. And also Inuo's body gradually gets restored with every performance. In fact, they weave it in to, to hype up the crowds. And this becomes part of Inuo's legend. However, remember, there's an approved playbook these two guys are singing and dancing outside of the approved playbook. And you can imagine there might be consequences from the man who controls the playbook, Shogun Ashikaga Yoshimitsu. This is the man who would go on to unify Japan, but he did it through a tight control of entertainment. He basically said, I am only approving this one form of entertainment, the no theater and this approved playlist from the Biwahoshi. Everything else is out. There's also a small matter of a serial killer who has been targeting Biwa priests who find and uncover new stories about the Heike clan. So this character's going to tie in in some way. Oh, and by the way, one small little detail. This film is a rock opera.
right, rock and roll. Next up is the Studio Rundown. So this is Studio Science Saru. This is actually a relatively recent studio. This was established in February 2013 by a producer, Enyong Choi, and the director, Masaaki Yuasa. These two have collaborated on several projects leading up to the creation of the studio. So I'm going to talk about both of them in relative detail. First up, Enyong Choi. She is a South Korean, and she moved to Japan in 2005 to work in the animation industry. I believe she started her career as a key animator on Witchblade, which I know she started her career with Studio Gonzo, and Witchblade is a series by them. So I think that's the one where she started her career with. But she wasn't with Gonzo long before moving to Studio Madhouse in 2006. And some of her works at Madhouse are Black Lagoon and Cashier and Sins. She started working with Yuasa at Madhouse on his 2008 series Kaiba, but she left Madhouse in 2009 to become the studio head of Ankama Japan. Ankama is a French animation company, and this is just their Japanese branch. However, in 2010, she also came back to direct an episode of Yuasa's 2010 series, The Tatami Galaxy. She was the episode director for episode 10. But what's important about uh, Choi's career at this time at is Ankama Studio, where they combined hand-drawn and digital animation using Adobe Animate. This is flash animation, 2D flash animation. The studio produced an episode of the French-Japan co-production series, Wakfu. This is the episode title, I think uh, it's Noximilian, the Watchmaker. Choi uh, directed this episode and Yuasa acted as the character designer. So there's a little bit of back and forth. And unfortunately, Ankama closed this studio in 2011 after the Tohoku earthquake disaster. But Choi thought the hand-drawn and flash animation techniques developed at that studio were worth holding on to, and she wanted to develop this further. And this blend of animation styles, or this blend of animation techniques, would be the foundation of Science Sadaru not two years later. Science Sadaru is actually composed of a lot of former Ankama staffers, including a man named Abel Gongora. This is a Spanish animator, and he is the head of their flash animation department. And Science Sadaru was formed shortly after Choi and Yuasa produced their independent film, Kick Heart, in 2013. This is a film actually funded through the website Kickstarter because they couldn't find companies to fund the project. Science Sadaru has quite the unique setup in the Japanese animation industry. The studio employs what it calls digitally assisted animation, wherein this is the key animation is drawn by hand, and it's all, but then it's recreated digitally for the in-between animation. This is like smoothing things out. This technique of digitally assisted animation allows for a smaller team and a higher workflow efficiency, which means it's easier to coordinate between departments, and also it's easier for the director to explain and lay out their vision for the work especially as Yuasa is one of those guys who makes some very unique off-the-wall project. Science Saru is also unique in that the staff ranges from a variety of cultures. You have, you know, the South Korean, you got Spanish, of course, a little bit of French thrown in. And Young Choi states that animators are brought in basically by work ethic. You're, you don't need to be Japanese to work in this Japanese medium. And most of... 
the studio's filmography has been directed by Masaki Yuasa since its founding. They've done a couple of in-between projects to get the ball rolling, so they contributed Flash animation to Ping Pong the animation. But the first big one, I believe, was in 2017 with the movie The Night is Short, Walk On Girl. This is set in the same universe, and I think it's a sequel to his 2010 film, uh, 2010 series, The Tatami Galaxy. Also in 2017, there's a movie called Lou Over the Wall. This is a movie about dancing mermaids. You can actually find this one on Netflix. It's a really weird take on The Little Mermaid, but it, it works in its own weird way. But the big one, in 2018, we have the very popular Devilman Crybaby. This is an extremely dark Netflix anime series that put Yuasa and Science Saru on the mainstream map. I'll talk a little bit about that in a minute here. And after Devilman was his movie Ride Your Wave in 2019, followed by two series in 2020, the first one being Keep Your Hands Off Aizoken, and another Netflix series, you can still find it, this is Japan Sinks 2020. This is a modern retelling of a popular earthquake disaster story. And in 2021, Yuasa directed the Heike Monogatari, a story of the Heike. This is an anime about the rise and fall of the Heike clan, which kind of leads nicely into this film. It's not required watching by any means, but I like to think of it as a soft prequel to Inuo. And of course, I would be remiss to not mention its two episodes, where Science Saru contributed two episodes to the Star Wars Visions anthology. This is episode six, that is uh, 2B1. This is directed by Abel Gongora. And it's also a tribute to Osamu Tezuka, aside from the obvious Astro Boy homage of that main character. And episode nine, my favorite in the series, this is Akakiri. And this episode is directed by Inyong Choi. So getting into the director, this is Masaki Yuasa. He is a creator with an extremely unconventional style. When you when you think of, quote, popular anime styles, I guess, or the Shonen Jump style, Dragon Ball Z, Naruto, Boruto, One Piece, Demon Slayer, Yuasa doesn't make anything remotely close to that. He got his start in the 90s. He is a key animator for various children's series. So if you look these up, this is Chibi Maruko-chan, uh, Crayon Shinchan, and Doraemon. He has a lot of credits with uh, Crayon Shinchan in particular over the years as a character designer and a scenario, uh, as, a, as a setting designer. He also is animated in a couple of OVA series. His work as an anime animation director on Hakenden, Legend of the Dog Warriors, is one of those that's highly praised. You can also find some of his work in the compilation films Genius Party and Genius Party Beyond. Yuasa's directorial debut was with his film Mind Game in 2004, which is what I would call the animation equivalent of taking LSD and asking Jesus to take the wheel. This <laughs> this movie is absolutely unhinged, it's unrestrained, and it's amazing. It's the kind of film that just executes this crazy vision just so perfectly that most folks, like including myself, I'm still not sure what to make of this film, but the folks who that I talk to who like this film really like this film. There's some really cool stuff going on. And in general, Yuasa's artistic style places form over functions. His characters and environments almost take on this rubber hose quality at times, like old Warner Brothers cartoons or others from like the 1930s and before. And the way he constructs a scene or tells a story is 
almost never straightforward. This guy really likes to go for the abstract, especially in his early works like Mind Game and Kaiba. Character proportions will just go all over the place, just contorting and swaying to match the scene rather than make the scene uh, accommodate the characters. And colors, yes please, all of them at once. And like I mentioned earlier, Science Sotaru and Yuasa, they love mixing animation techniques. Yuasa will work with live action, he'll throw in flash animation, clay animation, just anything that he just thinks would make the scene cool. Generally, Yuasa, you can just think of him like he just zigs while others zag. And for me, even one of his more normal and approachable films, Ride Your Wave, I really like this movie, but even then, they take some pretty hard left turns at key points in the story. And Yuasa's been a creator who, whose work has always been popular with critics and kind of gets this cult following, but, and he would always win a bunch of awards, but the sales numbers for this stuff would never really pan out. The term visionary director got uh, attributed to him, and sometimes it seemed like an ironic title. And this would become basically the norm for any projects that Yuasa would helm and just have full creative control. Kaiba, again, this is 2008. It's visually abstract. It's very cerebral. Almost no one watched it cult following. The Tatami Galaxy, visually abstract, uh, although it's a slower paced story. A little bit of time loop shenanigans. In fact, a lot of time loop shenanigans. No one watched it, but it got a cult following. In fact, Funimation, the company Funimation, licensed the Tatami Galaxy and they lost their shirt on this show. They couldn't get anyone to watch this. Hell, they put it on YouTube for free, the entire show. No one watched it. And in the years leading up to the founding of Science Sotaru, this would be become a pattern, and Yuasa would find less and less opportunities to direct projects in his style. Of course, there's the aforementioned film Kickheart in 2013. This was crowdfunded by fans on Kickstarter because companies wouldn't front the money for a Romeo and Juliet S&M wrestling love comedy. Imagine that. He guest directed an episode of Space Dandy, and that is season two, episode three. He even animated a segment of Adventure Time on Cartoon Network. Look up the food chain sequence. That was him. Personally, my first encounter with Yuasa's work was with Ping Pong the Animation in 2014, and I bounced off that immediately. I could not get into the art style, and I just did not give it a chance. And I didn't really engage with Yuasa's work really at all until 2017 with Lou Over the Wall. And that movie was when I started to get the appeal of his style and like, okay, maybe I need to give this guy a second chance. Yuasa has stated that his biggest influences are Tex Avery from Warner Brothers and Looney Tunes and the painter Salvador Dali. Take note of Dali's works in particular, and you can instantly see the connection with Yuasa's crazy-ass style. Yuasa is also not shy about exploring sex and eroticism in his works. The same goes for how he portrays violence. Like Generally, the way that he portrays the heightened emotions in his work, the scenes are just practically boiling over with extreme uh, color palettes, body contortions, you got crazy and. Uh, camera angles, just pure chaos on screen. And Yuasa just goes full expressionism in portraying the emotions of his characters. And that's the point. His style is all about subverting and twisting reality 
to enhance the emotion, to enhance the reality of the scene for what his characters are feeling. Because emotions can be messy and erratic, but the experience of those emotions is real. And Yuasa's characters are extremely expressive in this regard. And if you ever watch one of his deals and one of his characters is stressing out or they're having this mental breakdown, the way that this is, is expressed, this expressionism is what I believe is one of his core strengths as a visual creator. But at the same time, this extreme expression of it can also be off-putting. It certainly was for me. Yuasa is what I would call a humanist director. He also has a particular fondness for love stories. And all of the elements of his animation style I outlined earlier are in service for the stories that he wants to tell. He also bucks the trend in choosing protagonists for his film. Case in point, this one. For Inuo, the characters are basically off the margin of, from the margins of society. You know, Inuo and Tomo are the losers of the Muromachi period. And in a lot of ways, if you were to go back through his other works, Yuasa basically picks the most unexpected or seemingly uninteresting main character for his works. And they end up being just some of the most brilliant bits of character writing that you can have the pleasure of watching. And another core tenet of Yuasa's work is the idea of young heroes were using positivity and acceptance to help the older generation heal from societal wounds that have caused pain and discrimination in the past. That's literally the film of Inuo. And there's also this line, I'm going to take a line from the film, and this is spoken by Tomo regarding the Heike spirits. And he says, they just want people to know that they once lived, and I want to be the one to give them that chance through my music. The central message of Yuasa's work always points back to love, acceptance, kindness, and empathy, always. And one more thing that I've come to notice from Yuasa's work, and as I am slowly working my way through his filmography, is that in telling his stories, Yuasa doesn't always wrap things up with the pretty little bow, you know, they all lived happily ever after. In a lot of cases, it's vague or seemingly tragic, but it's up to us, the audience, to figure out our own meaning or take our own lessons from the journey that his characters go on. Even at the end of, to get back to Ride Your Wave, which I honestly think has a pretty happy ending, all things considered, this movie still ends with our main character, our heroine, breaks down in tears at the end of the movie because she's finally letting herself grieve over the losses that she has suffered in that movie. And to end a film on a character breaking down crying, in watching that film, it was a really big gut punch. And it's an ending that I just still think about today. I was like, man, I don't think anyone else would have ended the movie like that. It is so good. Definitely check out Ride Your Wave as well. I'm sure I'm going to do an episode on it uh, at least next year. And Yuasa is a creator that I've just come to know very recently in the past few years. And I'm honestly kicking myself for not giving uh, his work a chance before that. And I just can't wait to dive further into this film. So starting things off, we're getting into the staff properly now. We have script and screenplay by Akiko Nogi. She actually comes over from live action TV dramas and film. One of her series is Library Wars. This is a drama and film series. 
And this is not her first time working with adapting manga. Some manga or anime gets adapted into live action. So the one that I have picked out for her is I Am a Hero. This is a very tense uh, zombie survival manga series. Over here, we have The Walking Dead. Over in Japan, they have series like I Am a Hero. And for the setting of NUO, and also these are people who worked on or they consulted for the previous series, the Heike Monogatari. We have the history supervisor, Sata Yoshihiko. We also have the Biwa supervisor, Goto Yukihiro. He also voices a character named Tani Ichi. This is Tomono's master and guild brother. And actually during the Japanese premiere of the film, he performed a Biwa concert for the audience. And for the Sangaku or Nogaku supervisor, they had a guy who worked with them on that, and his name is Keizo Miyamoto. He basically consulted for, okay, when you're animating these uh, Nogaku performances, this is how the people will move, and this is how the clothing uh, was dressed. In fact, all of the, including with all the history and the supervisors, the clothing for commoners and nobility is accurate to the Muromachi time period. So getting into uh, the character design, the original character design for the Inuo novel, they took a lot of inspiration from these character designs for the film. So the original designer is a man named Taiyo Matsumoto, and this is a manga author. He did the character designs for the Inuo novel, Furukawa's novel, which these designs served as the basis for the film, and he also consulted for the character designs on the film. And his claim to fame is the manga Tekon Kinkrit, which got a 2006 anime adaptation by Studio 4C. And he is the manga author for Ping Pong. This is the 2014 anime adaptation by Yuasa during his time with Tatsunoko Productions. The character designs for the film proper were done by Ito Nobutake. He has worked with Yuasa a long time. He started as character designs for uh, the production of Kaiba and Mind Game. In fact, Kaiba was his debut as a character designer, and he was also the chief animation director on various episodes for Kaiba and Mind Game. And if you look through Yuasa's filmography, you will find Nobutake-san listed as character designer in practically every one of them. So for chief animation director, we actually have two of them, and this is uh, Satoshi Nakano, and this man's had a steady career with Studio LLM, which is mainly known for Pokemon. He is the chief animation director on the Pokemon Sun and Moon series, as well as the Pokemon movies produced in 2015 and 2016. He has also been a key animator on the Pokemon movies and the Yokei Watch movies throughout the 2010s. And he is also a key animator on the first opening to the Netflix anime series, Komi Can't Communicate. This is also by Studio OLM. Our second animation director is Yoshimichi Kamada, and he is one of the main animators on Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood action scenes, and he also contributed key animation for the opening credit sequences. And if you remember from our last episode on Soul Eater, Kamada's animation work on Brotherhood was heavily influenced by Nakamura's animation work on Soul Eater, and you can really sh- you can really see it. Kamada also adopted the brushstroke technique through Inuo, but it's a little more subtle. Nothing nowhere near as his work on Mob Psycho 100. 
He also does action animation for Mob Psycho 100. If you want to see Yoshimita Kamada go off, watch Mob Psycho 100. He's also the chief character designer on all three seasons of that show. And as for the art director, this is Hideki Nakamura. This man started as a background artist in the early 90s, mostly on movies. He also has, uh, like we're talking, Slam Dunk, Inuyasha the movie, Digimon Tamers, and the Frontier movies, as well as Ghost in the Shell Innocence. He moved more into the art direction phase leading into the 2010s, so Gundam Thunderbolt, and he's pretty much been an art director, majority art director since then. Leading into the backgrounds and art direction of Inuo, everything that I've described about the craziness of Yuasa's previous works and setting, Inuo is very much more grounded in relative reality. The backgrounds and setting, This uh, the movie takes place in old Kyoto, so they have the architecture and all of the city. You don't really, it's not really like we're running through the city streets. But it is, everything is accurate to the period, the clothing, and the eventual technology that is, or so the, the way that the concerts are produced and put together, kind of, they do a really good job of bullshitting you into, okay, this is kind of how a uh, stadium performance would have pulled off using 14th century technology. So the color director is Yuko Kobari. They have an illustrious career and across some of my favorite works, the movie Redline. They also contributed to Space Dandy, The Great Pretender, and of course, The Ancient Magus Bride. And they are actually currently involved with the second season of Ancient Magus Bride and the very colorful series Skip and Loafer. And I wanted to talk about Kabari Sound for a bit because the color direction for Tomo's blindness, shortly after he goes blind, we are with him on his journey. And so as he, obviously he knows what colors are and everything before he was blinded, his, the way he perceives the world takes on a very interesting shade. And just, it's some of the more creative aspects early on in the film. As he, as he hears things, he fills in the details. And so we also are, the audience are made aware of his surroundings. So he sees things, he sees the environment now more in shades of monotone and as he the more sharper the sound the redder or the more warm the color is and i just think there this it's it's a really interesting animation and sequence and the color direction was just really interesting and i just really wanted to highlight that it's also does a really good job where this film basically in a way becomes a silent movie the sound design was done by nakano katsushiro it's a really underrated position but if you want some more overt examples. His latest works are Akiba Made War and Revenger. What I what I like about the art direction and the color is the set designs is, are relatively uh, grounded in, I guess, as real of a world as we can have, have established with Inuo the film. And it's also the set design for the concerts. I really like how 14th century technology is used to you know, fool us, the audience, into the plausibility of how this is possible, how this big stage performance is being pulled off. Of course, with this being a musical film, this has to double into timing with the with the music. So, but before I get into the music, I actually want to cover the characters and the actors because we have an interesting situation to talk about with the character actors. 
So first off, we have Tomo, or Tomona, Tomoichi, Tomoari. Uh, his actor is the stage actor and dancer, Mirai Moriyama. But if you're going to look him up, check out Tokyo Olympics 2021, The Dance of Death. This is the one where the dancer is hooked up to the heartbeat machine mirror thing, and he's doing all this stuff. That's him. That's Moriyama. And the one only previous voice actor credit that Moriyama has, he voiced Jesus Christ in the OVA series Saint Young Men, which is a slice of life comedy series of various religious figures. So yeah, this man voiced Jesus Christ. No big deal. Uh, Tomo's English actor is Senna Breyer, who he's more of a podcaster. So he does uh, script and voices in a couple of podcast series, Dreambound, Human Error, Lone Stranger. That's Senna Breyer. And so getting into Inuo, this is our main man. This is the title character. In Japanese, Inuo is voiced by Avochan from the band Queen Bee. And obviously, Avochan is a pseudonym. All of the band members of Queen Bee have pseudonyms, but Avochan is their lead vocalist and songwriter. They, are, they also are as write songs and produce music, and they produce this under the pseudonym Avu Baranzo. They've written songs for Lisa, Ai Shinozake, and Meg. Sometimes the Queen Bee members contribute to these songs as well. And Avu is partial African-American descent. Their song Half from the anime Tokyo Ghoul is actually based on their experiences growing up. Uh, basically, mixed heritage kids have it pretty rough in Japan. And their voice has an incredible range. They go high, they can go low, they can kick that sucker into falsetto. And this dynamic expression carries over to the band Queen Bee. And this is more, I would think that it's kind of like a funky rock. They got some punk thrown in for good measure. Queen Bee has a very, very unique sound. And obviously, I'm going to list a couple of songs. First off, the I think the first time they worked with Masaki Yuasa was in Devilman Cryberry, Baby. They have a couple of voice credits for that as well. But look up Song of the Devilman. Uh, Avuchan sung that song next to the EBM artist Kensuke Ushio, Queen Bee. Did the first opening to the 2019 series Dororo. The song is Fire. And that was that's honestly my first exposure to their voice. And the next time I heard Avuchan was, of course, in Devilman, because I, I didn't watch Devilman immediately as it came out. But it was sometime in 2020 that I watched Devilman. But most recently, they've done the opening to Raven of the Inner Palace. That song is Mysterious. And if you've watched Chainsaw Man, one of the biggest anime of last year, Avuchan did the 11th ending, the ending to episode 11. That song is Violence. And most recently, we can't escape it, Oshinoko, Avuchan and Queen Bee did the ending credit song for Oshinoko, and that's called Mephisto. And when they were approached to voice Inuo, Avachan was very hesitant about voice acting. This is their only voice acting role so far. Well, technically two roles, as they voice Inuo as a child as well as an adult. Uh, Tomo has a, as a child, has a different actor, but I just didn't list them. But yeah, Yuasa was insistent that Avachan play the role of Inuo, and they may they went through great pains to kind of guide it through, and it ended up being really good. Like the Avuchan is Inuo, 
Inuo is Avochan. These two characters are one and the same. But for what it's worth, Inuo's English actor is Joshua Waters. They voice Miyano from Sasaki and Miyano. He also has a couple of voices in Genshin Impact. He also appeared in a YouTube series, Death Battle, as The Flash in 2020. And we have, next up, we have the Shogun, Ashikaga Yoshimitsu, the man who would unify Japan. His actor is Tasuku Emoto. This man is from, uh, mostly works in live action. He most recently appeared in Shin Kamen Rider. He was writer number two. In English, Ashikaga is voiced by Corey Yi, who voices Goro and a couple of other characters in Genshin Impact. He voices Shao Han in Destiny 2 and Liu Bei from the game Wo Long Fallen Dynasty. So he does a lot of video game work. Tanichi. I've already gone over his Japanese actor. This is Tomo's master and guild brother. So his actor is Goto Yukihiro, and he is the Biwa supervisor for the movie. English actor is Rene Mujika, who has done a lot of general cartoon work, so voiced in The Emperor's New School, also a couple episodes from The Tom and Jerry Show, that's the 2014 one. Yeah, also voices Carlo from The Price of Family. Inuo's father, they don't have a name. So he's just known as Inuo's father. His Japanese actor is Kenjiro Suda, who voices Seto Kaiba in Yu-Gi-Oh! Duel Monsters. This is the original series. And he also voices Luis Serra in the Resident Evil 4 remake. His English actor is Jason Marnocha, who is voices Gus from Carol and Tuesday, and also is the actor for Katana Man from the series Chainsaw Man. And last but not least, we have Tomono's father, who is also not named. His actor is Yutaka Matsushige, who's a live-action actor, but I actually know this guy from an anime film. This is Miss Hokusai, and, and this movie is about the daughter of the famous painter, the guy who did The Wave of Kamigawa. So Matsushige voices that artist. He, vo- he voices Hokusai. And in English, uh, Tomono's father is voiced by Keith Farley. He voices Thane Krios from Mass Effect. He was also the voiceover director for Adventure Time, Cyberpunk, and the Final Fantasy VII Remake. So getting into the music, we have the music director and soundtrack composer Otomo Yoshihide, and he's had several studio albums beginning from the 80s. He's also a composer for TV and film. Yoshihide is credited for overall soundtrack, composition, and arrangement. Avochan and Mirai Moriyama provided the vocals. And right now, Yoshihide moved on to compose for uh, Lupin Zero, which is an origin series of sorts for the Lupin Third, one of those modern prequels for a classic deal. And when it came to the soundtrack, you also had a vision, because again, the, even though Otomo was the soundtrack composer, it's Yuasa who has to say, like, this is the kind of music that I'm trying to make for, that I'm envisioning for the film. And so even though Otomo is in charge of the soundtrack, of course, it's Yuasa who is the chief director and says, this is the kind of the soundtrack, this is the kind of music vibe I'm going for. And then it's up to Otomo to actually compose the music. And as you, as you would think, Yuasa had a hard time conveying the concept for this film that he wanted to make for the soundtrack. This is a movie where the characters are playing traditional Japanese instruments, but it's being expressed as a rock opera with like modern electric guitar and everything. But it still mixes in 
traditional biwa and drum and everything else. So you have to ride this fine line. And Otomo Onyuasa just had several meetings where the composer basically asked to, to stay in touch with the art direction and to, to look at key visuals from the film project to help inspire the soundtrack. And this music that they came up with is anachronistic by design. We're talking biwa mixed with modern rock and roll. And in a way, this, is, this goes back to that subversion of reality to enhance the story. Because if you think about it, this is the, the all of these stories that Inuo and Tomina are telling are brand new to their audience. And the way that they are expressing it is also in this very rebellious way. So for the people living at that time, it's the equivalent of a new punk rock band emerging and just taking over the rock and roll scene nowadays. And so that's why they... They, they used rock and roll and modern instruments to express that. And we have several musical influences. Yuasa has a list, but in a couple of interviews, he lists the Beatles, Deep Purple, the band Queen, not, not Queen Bee, like Queen, Freddie Mercury and all that. That's a big one. And also a band called The Timers, which The Timers was a Japanese rock band from 1988 to 2005. Uh, Yuasa likes them because it's like this rebellious classic rock vibe. They also wore a lot of makeup and a couple of other musical and dance influences because the anachronisms don't stop with the soundtrack. This also goes into the various performances that they wanted Inuo to put on. So they watched a lot of music videos and dance videos from Michael Jackson. You can see Michael Jackson influences immediately. And I also see uh, a bit of James Brown thrown in there as well. He does that slide and shuffle and just any kind of modern dance. But Michael Jackson especially is a big influence. The team also watched a lot of ballet. And just for good measure, they also threw in some gymnastics. We have the bar. We have ribbon twirling and tumbling. And just they basically threw everything in. So anything goes. This is a lot to compose and choreograph and time to the music. So the general timeline would be the first step would be we're going to get we're going to choreograph the dances, we're going to get them storyboarded and then you also would hand this off to the animation team. And by the time they establish the key poses, the song would be completed because Otomo was being shown all of the key poses for the music and like the general art and they say we're going for this sort of vibe. And so by the time you got your anchor points, essentially, the animation team would have the song and the animation team would be listening to the song and they would polish the in-between scenes to match the music. And it would just cre it created this nice feedback loop between the music and animation departments and also inspired both departments to kind of push the soundtrack and push the animation a little further. It's one of those stories. It's like, okay, this is this that that's really cool. And to help with all of this, and also to direct all of the voice actors, we have the sound director Eriko Kimura, who works for the Tohoku Shinsha Film Corporation. This is basically a Japanese dubbing house for foreign films, so media that they get from us. So some of Kimura's work is films and video games. So they translated into Japanese, Crash Bandicoot, Wayne's World. Uh, Kimura worked on the Harry Potter series. Their voice director, their, some of their anime credits involve Yakitate Japan 
And they've also been involved on a couple of other Yuasa projects, the Tatami Galaxy, Ping Pong, and Keep Your Hands Off Isoken. So getting into release and reception, Inuo premiered, had its world debut at the 78th Venice International Film Festival on September 9th, 2021. It won a couple of awards there. Its North American debut was at the Toronto International Film Festival just immediately after. This ran from September 9th to September 18th, 2021. And the Japanese debut was at the Tokyo International Film Festival in November 2021, with a theatrical release following on May 28, 2022, with Asmic Ace and Aniplex Companies co-distributing. And for the English version of Inuo, the film was distributed by Shout Factory and licensed by G-Kids. The ADR was done by Michael Tremaine. He's done a lot of voice work in video games like Dynasty Warriors. He's also the founder of NYAV Post. This is a dubbing company he founded in 2000. So the company has done dubbing work for Star Wars Visions, Vampire in the Garden. That's by Studio Wit. And you can also see that on Netflix. And generally, if you look through the G-Kids catalog, NYAV Post has pretty much done the voice directing for all of it. However, for Inuo in particular, the English dub is there, but they kept all of the songs in Japanese instead of reworking the entire movie for translation. And in my personal opinion, considering that most of this film is a rock concert, you may as well watch the entire movie in the Japanese dub Plus, you have the actors leading directly into the singing, so you don't have that disconnect of going from the English actors to now a semi-different voice type singing the songs. But again, it's also up to preference. I can also understand, like, there's a lot going on in the concerts on top of keeping track of the subtitles, so I can understand if the English dub is more up your alley just to have a reprieve from the visual overload. And that about does it for the production for the actual production side of Inuo. Uh, moving on, I'm going to run into the review roundup. Now, I know I've gone over some general plot points through the film, but rest assured I am not going to talk spoilers on the end of the plot. I'm pretty much leaving this as open as I can, but I do want to talk about how the film opens because I really like this sequence. We essentially have a withered Biwa priest who's sitting on a modern street and a bridge, and as he begins to play his instrument, the scene rolls back in time to the scenery of the Munurmachi period, and it is Really cool. I like it when shows do this, and I also don't see this motif terribly often. I've seen it in Samurai Champloo and Blade of the Immortal. And this sequence just slams into this brilliant burst of color and a Sangaku performance where we are introduced to Inuo's father at the height of his career, having an absolute blast on the stage. He has the audience in the palm of his hand. However, in the background, we see a pregnant woman suddenly hunching over in pain. Something terrible is happening. She is clearly in agony. And this is the birth of Inuo. We only get a brief glimpse of a gray something and the midwife recoiling in fear. And this monstrous shadow grasping at air is played up upon the walls. 
However, the father is completely uncaring for the trauma occurring in the next room. He is walking past this scene of horror with a big old smirk on his face and bam, title screen. Like, oh my gosh, that is a way that so much is told in that one moment. Like just wow, so much character is character building is introduced in that one moment. And at the U.S. premiere of NUO, this took place in Los Angeles on August 5th, 2022. This is also included in the Blu-ray credits if you happen to pick up this film. You can watch the Q&A session that was held after the film in, where, in which Yuasa was asked about his decision for making a character like NUO. And Yuasa said that this film can be viewed as a reinterpretation, and also a response to Osamu Tezuka's masterwork, Dororo and Hyakimaru. And in Dororo, the main character of that work, his name is Hyakimaru. He is also born heavily disfigured at birth due to his father's greed. His father made deals with a bunch of demons in exchange for influence and power, which left Hyakimaru with basically nothing. But he survives the ordeal And after he grows up, he travels the land to take revenge against his father. And as he kills the demons who stole parts of his body, he gradually restores his body. But this is very much a sequence of revenge. And Inuo has a similar beginning, like I've gone through. There's obviously been a nefarious deal with some supernatural entity to leave Inuo horrendously deformed. The differences between Inuo and Hyakimaru are just numerous. For one, Inuo actually doesn't hate his body, and he has a generally positive outlook about the whole thing, and he uses his unique features to actually enhance his dance moves. He comes up with a dance that only he can do, and this whole body restoration thing was as much of a surprise to him as it would be to his audience. And like I stated earlier, he and Tomo use these transformations and draw more audiences, which exposes more people to the story of the Heike, which leads to the curse being lifted. And Inuo is a name that he gave himself, and he very much forges his own path. It's actually Tomo, who is the character who starts on the path of revenge at the behest of his father's ghost. But even then, that storyline gets quickly shoved aside after he meets Inuo, because it's through this meeting where Tomo finds a path that is better and healthier than trying to get revenge against the most powerful man in Japan. In this aspect, I think Moriyama and Avochan just absolutely freaking nailed it as Tomona and Inuo. The voice actors and their characters, these guys feel one and the same. If there is one complaint that I have about the film is I do think you also could have toned down the violence. The serial killer scenes are not that bad by comparison, but the death of Tomo's dad was kind of shocking. And there's a bit later where it's a flashback to that scene and you kind of see the where whereas the body the camera was kind of zoomed out for the body falling in half there's a scene later in the movie where you kind of linger on like, oh, that's the bottom half of his dad just bleeding out in the boat. Great. And there's also a scene later in the movie where one guy just gets absolutely splattered. 
Like this guy is, he's there for one minute and the next thing he's just all over the walls, out of, out of the windows, dripping off the walls, into the water, little bits and giblets. Like, okay, Yuasa, I don't think the guy's coming back from this. I think you've definitively showed me he is freaking dead. But I mean, it was a scene that actually jump scared me. I paused and was like, holy, what the, wow, okay, that was unnecessary. But you know, hey, rock and roll. (laughs) But that's the biggest complaint that I have. Some of the violence could have been toned. I think it's almost treading on an R rating, but the scenes of violence are so few and far between that I think it skirts away with the PG-13 rating just fine. But I think you could have easily told this film without lingering so much on the blood and gore. But getting back to the positives, for one thing, I think this is a movie that really benefits from rewatching. And in fact, I think you need to rewatch this movie multiple times. And it's an aspect about, it's one of the reasons that I decided to include the history lesson at the top because I just found having this little bit of extra, uh, what's the word, context. I don't know why, I don't know why I couldn't think of it. I think having this little bit extra context going into the film helps frame some of the backstory and some of the background and some of the references. And frankly, the, the movie is just a bit of a visual overstimulation at times. Like during the first time I was watching this film, I felt like I was barely hanging on. In fact, it took me, the movie is only, is just under a hundred minutes, including credits, but it took me easily two hours or two and a half hours to watch the film because I kept pausing and rewinding to rewatch segments in between picking my jaw up off the floor. And like the concerts are just an absolute visual and audio feast. It is just amazing. And again, I believe the Japanese dialogue is the obvious choice because most of the film is a rock concert sung in Japanese anyways. And having the voice actors also play the singers just really helps with the immersion. And the dance choreography is also just incredibly impressive. It's really during the dances is when I did most of my pausing. And... I said it earlier, but NUO has a modernist feel by design. And you can think of it this way as the art that was created back then, like back during the time of the Muromachi period, the art that was created back then felt modern at the time for the people who'd lived there. And what I like about Yuasa's approach to the film is he treats the people living at the time as if they were living among us. People from the past were just like us today. And he elaborates a little bit on this during the Los Angeles premiere, where he says that the story of the Heike clan was kept alive thanks to the efforts of people like the Biwahoshi and the No performers. But he laments that there are like no stories of these performers that exist on the historical record, even Inuo, who goes on to be the most popular entertainer of his time. And he laments that most of our entertainment today is disposable to be viewed once, maybe gain a brief following before being put aside for the next new thing. And all across the world, you can just find stories of lost media and art preservation. Even our current history right now, where everything is online, this is nebulous at best. And in his own way, you also made NUO kind of to be a lesson in the art and preserving the arts and to remember 
the artists who make some of our favorite deals. And as I conclude this episode, I just want to say that Inuo was not originally on the docket for this podcast. In fact, I watched the movie maybe a month or so prior to starting the podcast. So I saw this movie uh, late March, early April. And even at the early stages, before I've recorded a single episode, I knew I had to cover this movie. And I hope that if you haven't seen this movie, I've done my part in convincing you to take a chance on one of the most visually unique films I've had the pleasure of experiencing. And it is very unique. This movie, to me, is almost pure creative expression. And at the core of the film is the unshakable friendship of Inuo and Tomina. These men go on an amazing journey together. And I think the lessons that we can take from their journey and just how they viewed their art and how the, the way that they lived is very inspiring in their, in their own way. Because like I said before, the central message of Yuasa's works always points back to love, acceptance, kindness, and empathy. Always. Inuo is a real person, we think, but he only exists as a name and a story. And it's thanks to people like Yuasa and Furukawa finding the stories and doing their small part to keep these legends alive. And as you watch the film and come to its conclusion, I leave it up to you to decide if their journey was worth it in the end. I think it was. Thank you for listening. Thank you.